Hello, I'm Dave Watts, and this is the Redundancy Podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to share the challenges of finding and keeping a job as an older worker. In this podcast, my guest is Dr. Matt Flynn from Hull University in the UK, but is actually speaking to me from Hartford, Connecticut in the States. Matt is Professor of Human Resource Management for Organisational Behaviour and Human Resource Management and the Director of the Centre for Research into the Older Workforce. He's carried out research for both the UK and Hong Kong governments on the impact of ageing demographics on the world of work, produced good practice guides for employers on making work attractive to older workers, and is working with partners in Spain, Italy and Poland on a project developing industry-specific approaches to workplace active ageing. Naturally, he's also a prolific writer of articles and extracts for research papers. In this podcast, Matt is going to talk about his research into the challenges that older military veterans face when leaving the armed forces after long service careers. Matt, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Can we start by you telling us what the background to the research is? Well, this was really an initiative led by the Officers Association, which managed the project and represents current and former military officers in the UK. There's a separate organization that represents people of other ranks. And what they were recognizing was that there were a lot of their members who were leaving after very long service and trying to build a career in the civilian world and somewhat struggling with that effort. It might take them a long time to find something which really suited them. They noticed that there wasn't very much research in this area, either in the UK or more broadly, and they went to an organization called Forces in Mind Trust to do a project to talk to people who leave the armed forces after the age of 50, either in other ranks or as officers, find out what their experiences are in the civilian workforce. Now, the armed forces in the UK, I think, have been reduced over the last 30 or 40 years, but still there's a reasonable proportion leaving every year, aren't there? Yes, it's somewhat of a pyramid in terms of the age structure. So you have a lot of people who join the military in their early 20s and they leave somewhat quickly afterwards. They've got a certain skill set, which they then market in the civilian workforce, a little bit fewer in their 30s and 40s. And then by the time you reach the age of 50, you have a smaller cohort of people who are leaving, but are entering a brand new world of something that was totally alien to them relative to how they developed their career in the military. In many ways, that's counterintuitive, because if I think of members of the armed forces, you think of huge skills, qualifications, certification, leadership, What is their experience then of service leavers in the civilian job market? Well, it's somewhat mixed. There's a saying in the armed forces one of the service leavers shared with us, which is that the military is the one employer that starts preparing you to leave them from the first day that you actually start. And some people get on board with that very early on. So they have a personal development portfolio. They're always thinking about getting new training. They're thinking about how they're going to apply that training to when they eventually leave the military and look for a civilian job. And then once they get to that transition point, then they hit the ground running. There are others who 
know that they're eventually going to leave the military. But when once they get to that point, they're very uncertain about what they're going to do. And of course, from the employer's perspective, the employer on a very impressionistic level values the skills that are acquired and developed in the military, but they're not sure how they're actually going to apply it. So you have two groups of people, the job seeker and the job provider, who are somewhat searching in the dark and trying to find one another and not always accomplishing that goal. Yes, when I made a significantly poor career decision back in my 20s, at least I had the ability to find the safety net and go back to the industry that I was or had been working in. I take it with service leavers, they don't have that safety net because you can't go back to the military once you leave. Exactly. There were certainly examples that people who I spoke to were able to give direct forms of discrimination, either on the basis of age or military status. People being called toy soldiers or old knackers, jorative's that weren't very nice and, and, and are very discriminatory. But in a lot of cases, what you have are employers who, from their own perspective, are making very rational decisions about who to choose for positions. So if you've got, on the one hand, a service leaver who's got very good skills, they've got great training from the military, they've got leadership skills and project management skills, planning, and they have the right attitude and so forth, and you think that they'd be a great candidate, but then you have somebody else whose last job was very similar to what you're seeking a job candidate for, you might tend to choose the second one because that's the less risky decision to make. That's the one that has the closest fit with that position. That always undermines the service lever because the service lever doesn't have that job, which is very, very close to what they had done before, because what they had done before is very unique in the labor market. And yet that's an issue that civilian job seekers have. They talk about transferable skills, but many potential employers will say, but you haven't done this exact job before. And you might try and put a narrative together that says, yes, but my skills are similar or it's come from a similar industry. And they go, nah, but we don't want you because it's not the same. And I think a lot of younger job seekers, although we're principally talking about older people here, would also say that. You can't have the job unless you've done the exact job before. Yes, yes. Although similar to your own example, if you're a civilian job seeker and you've gone through that process many, many times, you might eventually say, well, maybe I'll just go back to something which I had done before because that is then a very close fit. It's not really good for employers to have this perspective either, because if you're always choosing the person whose former job was very, very close to what uh, what you're advertising for, you might lose some broader perspective and you might lose skills that aren't necessarily incumbent to that particular industry. So there are, as well as being rational reasons for organizations to choose the candidate whose profile fits closest with the job to hand, there are also reasons, uh, quite rational reasons, for them to think more expansively about who can best fill a particular position. I agree. From my knowledge of police forces in the UK, for example, an awful lot of police officers who retire after 30 years then go back as police staff, and they're recruited because of their skills and knowledge, and also the police officers 
haven't really known anything else for the past 30 years. So for them, it's an easy choice. Absolutely. But of course, people who leave the military don't really have that luxury, except a number of people that I talked to who discussed the value uh, of becoming a reservist once they left military service so that they would have some part-time, more tangential relationship with their former employer. And there were some practical reasons for doing this. So you could still acquire some military skills or you could get some top-up training, or maybe you can get some career support through reservist service. But it was also a way in which to keep with the culture that they were accustomed to as well. And it, 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 it because sometimes people would talk about quite painful breaks with not just their former careers, but also the former lives that they had before, everything built around military service. And becoming a reservist was both a practical and an emotionally supportive way of transitioning to civilian work. You mentioned earlier bias. Is it both ageism and anti-military bias that they're finding? Yes. So there was a lot of overlap between the two of them. So people who reported experiences experiencing bias in terms of their military status also said that it was because of age. And that's because there are a lot of overlaps in terms of both negative and positive perceptions of both service leavers and older people. So the idea that a service person would be regimented or set in their ways or have a particular way of doing things and not thinking more flexibly were also things that are often used to describe older workers. On the other hand, perceptions of service leavers as being loyal and dedicated to their work and people that you could trust and so forth are also positive perceptions of older workers that you hear from employers. I've spoken to many career planning experts who talk about the need to develop a plan B well in advance and not as a distress purchase, as it were, when they find their role made redundant. Is it a sense, going back to an earlier point that you made, that service leavers are also leaving it too late to think about the transition? Well, there was a report that was done a couple of years ago by Lord Ashcroft about service leavers generally, not older ones, but throughout the landscape. And one of the recommendations that was made was that there needs to be a, 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 a new emphasis around ensuring that people who are in the military maintain personal development plans. So every time they acquired a new skill, they documented that. If that skill required a certification of, of that training, that they would acquire it. If they acquired a new skill based on their experience, they were able to document that as well and get some backup for it. All of that is very logical and very practical, but the experience of service leavers is that it's somewhat uneven. Some people got a lot of support from their commanding officers to maintain their personal development plan to make sure that everything was documented, some fairly less so. And ironically, those who were in positions that had more responsibility or were higher status or were in critical roles were often those who, who let their personal development plan slide because they had more pressing things to think about at the, at the time. So ironically, those who were acquiring the best skills were sometimes in the poorest position to document them. There's also sort of the broader issue of planning psychologically for that transition to civilian work, which is somewhat mixed as well. So we uh, accompanying the workshop discussions that we had with service leavers, we also ran a survey to find out 
experiences of people who had already left the military. And most of those, about two-thirds, said that they had acquired their first job either while they were in transition to civilian work or within a month of doing so. So very soon after leaving the military, they found their first job. But you also had some some people who spent a very long period of time in unemployment and struggling to find something which would suit them. And the reasons for that were that they would struggle with sort of trying to find the right degree of focus on a particular sector, a particular type of occupation that they would go for. Some were too narrow with this and said, well, I want to become a chief executive of a small manufacturing company in the Humberside area, and they would wait for ages to find that particular job and it would never come about. Or they would be too broad in their perspective and take a very scattergun approach to find many, look for many different jobs and never really succeed in demonstrating to the employers that they were the right fit for the jobs that they were applying for. So navigating the labor market was something, uh, the job market was something that, 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 that some people struggled with quite a lot. Is there a mismatch then between what the service leavers are selling and employers are buying? You showed a slide in a presentation a few months ago that showed, I think, that 30-odd, 35% of service leavers said they thought leadership was their most important skill, but only 10% of employers were rating that for new hires. Is there any sense that it's much broader and there's a misunderstanding by service leavers about what they can actually offer? Yes, I think so. It's understandable how this mismatch comes about and how some 50-plus service leavers struggle with employers. Most of them never had or had very distant experiences in going for a job interview or discussing their skills and their potential for contribution to different organizations. So it's understandable that they might not feel in a good position to market themselves in the civilian market. I would say that there's a lot of work that employers can do on this as well, because it's not just it's not just the service lever who needs to retool their game in the job market. Employers also need to sort of think about how they advertise for jobs, how they conduct interviews, how they assess the skills that not just 50 plus service leavers, but other people might have whose experiences are outside the sector which the employer is, is accustomed to. Is there any sense of internationality about the experience for those leaving military after long service? Might you expect to find the same general themes in the United States or Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and so on? Well, there's certainly different cultural perspectives on military status. I mean, here here in the United States, one of the interesting things is when you're boarding a plane, they always ask for, obviously, they always ask for people with children to board on first, and then they ask the people in first class to join the plane, and then they ask anybody who's a military veteran to board. So there's a certain amount of more transparent, extrovert respect, which is shown probably in the United States, saying you you might see in other the European countries. And this then translates to employment issues as well. So I've seen television commercials, for example, of employers that are actively seeking service leavers for jobs. And this is done not just for CSR reasons, like we want to be a good employer and we want to support people who have served the country, but also for very practical reasons. Service leavers have 
skills which we need, and therefore we're going to tap into this workforce. So you do see a common issue in terms of employers, how they can better use the skills which are coming out of military service. There's also commonality in terms of the challenges that employers have around the world in terms of skills shortages, in terms of tapping into experiences and and skills from new sectors, in terms of aging workforces. And they're all responding to the in the same way. And one of those ways is to look for ways to better use the skills which are coming out of military service. Have any conclusions been drawn or recommendations produced as a result of your research? Yes. So the report has a number of recommendations for three constituencies. Employers, what you might call stakeholder organizations like the Ministry of Defense and an organization called Career Transition Partnership and the Officers Association, membership-based and charity organizations, and then service leaders themselves. One of the things that we noticed in the research was that a number of people who we spoke to who had left the military after the age of 50, had a long career in the civilian world, took a long period of time to find the job that was right for them. So they might have been one of that two-third population who found a job just after they left the military, but that wasn't the right job for them. And they went from job to job afterwards until maybe about five or six years later, they found something which suited them well. So one of the recommendations that we made with this is that although service leavers get a lot of support from the Career Transition Partnership and the Ministry of Defense, at the point of transition, there's a, a bit less uh, further down the line. And we made a recommendation that maybe more support be given to 50 plus service leavers throughout their career, not necessarily from CTP or from the Ministry of Defense, but from other stakeholders. And this is something that the Officers Association in particular is taking up to say, well, as a membership-based organization, what can we do to support our members who are even after they left the military, still trying to develop their careers and still trying to find new ways in which to use their skills to the benefit of themselves and for their organizations. Thank you, Matt. And where does your research take you next and how can you be contacted? Well, you can contact me either through the Center for Research into the Older Workforce webpage, which is very easy to remember. It's just agediversity.org or through the University of Hull, which is my employer and sends me my paychecks every month. In terms of where we go forward with this, we've got something which is quite exciting in that in 2022, I know it's a long way away, having a special issue with a HRM journal called International Journal of Human Resource Management on employers and service leavers and approaches to managing the career transition process. A colleague of mine at Cranfield University has recently completed a report on gender and military service. And she found many of the same issues that I found in with 50 plus service leavers. And we've got a colleague at the Veterans and Family Institute at Anglia Ruskin University. who's also done quite a lot of work with service leavers on employment issues. So we're getting together and we're going to be developing an academic audience and sort of a community of practice on this issue to look at some of the issues that different types of service leavers might have once they leave the military and become job seekers in the civilian world. Thank you very much for your time today, Matt. 
This is a sector that I've had very little experience with, and it's been fascinating to learn about the challenges faced by veterans. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Matt has described challenges uniquely faced by military veterans, and also the themes that we recognise are faced by older workers in general. The challenges are both the same and also very different. They're the common themes of working for the same organisation for a long time and being unsure of how the job market operates outside that environment. That mismatch between what values you're selling and what values employers are buying. Employers being risk-averse to taking on new employees who haven't done the exact or very similar role before. Older workers late in developing a plan B, with it often being a distressed purchase, as it were, after the role has been made redundant. The extended time it can take to find a new role and the compromises that may have to be made. And of course, ageism, with employers not recognising the true value older workers can offer. Matt talks about organisations often failing to understand the opportunities that similar skills and the bottom line benefits that having an age-diverse workforce can bring. And European studies have proven that an age-diverse workforce has a direct and positive effect on the bottom line. Worryingly, the research shows a distinct anti-military bias in some organisations and the difficulty that veterans face with no employment safety net to fall back on. The research suggests as well that veterans may face these issues across the world and many struggle to readapt to civilian life and that's a unique challenge for them. If you've liked the podcast, why not tell a friend? The more who listen, the more I can try and help. And if you're a veteran... Whichever country you live in who struggle to find employment following a long service career, why not email me or schedule a call? Perhaps I can feature your story on the podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast the whole way through. You can make contact with me via my website, theredundancypodcast.com, which has a synopsis of this and all the podcast main points, by emailing me at theredundancypodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter with the hashtag at redundancypcast.